End user programming is a vision of computing that allows people who are not professional software developers to program their own computers. So users uh, of programs can uh, customize or modify the programs that they use every day, or they can write their own to suit their own needs. When there are new ways to think about programming computers, people can kind of effectively perform magic is the world that we're describing. I'm pretty excited for that. Hey, this is Sri. And this is Will. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. How's it going? I've missed you as as much as yes. people that don't see each other as much miss each other. But I guess that's a lot of people. This is season two. Welcome, welcome to season two. Yeah, I mean, we have new mics. We probably sound a little better. I don't know if we look any better. <laughs> right right like we need to subscribe to moisturizer instead of like drinking whatever it is that we drink and getting new mics but yeah you can look forward to our, our viewers and listeners can look forward to a better sound this season and perhaps uh, better jokes and uh, better uh, self-referential themes so so yeah that's what we got this season what what do we have to look forward this season from you so actually, uh, last season, I was I was drinking mostly alcoholic beverages, and now I've jumped on the health beverage uh, wagon inspired by you, Will. <laughs> and so that's my big change for season two is like I'm going to become a healthy person, <laughs> drinking weird beverages from health food. Uh, I see the 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 beer gut's gonna turn into some six pack abs uh, by the end of this season, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> so here we go. All right, so what, do, what yeah. are we talking about this week in season, season two, episode one? Well, hold on. What are we drinking this week? Oh, right, right. What <laughs> are we drinking question. this week? Yeah, yeah. I, I skipped too far into it. So what I'm drinking is the Waterloo Sparkling Water Mango Flavor. You can see that without the reflection, I guess. And so... Nice. I don't know. Normally, I don't really like this uh, flavored water, but this is what I got this week. <laughs> cool. Well, so yeah, like I mentioned, I also made a little trip to Whole Foods, and I got this, I don't know if you can see, poppy, poppy. Um, prebiotic, prebiotic orange soda. And so it's going to have a healthy gut and immunity sidekick. So... Yeah, hopefully this will combat all the damage that I've done in the previous season. <laughs> yeah, maybe we get healthy colons this way. So to that, uh, we have we know we have one single viewer that only tunes in every week to see what we're drinking. So cheers, Vic. <laughs> cheers. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs> so so to then then to backtrack backtrack on uh, what we're t uh, talking about. What are we talking about this week? The the anticipated reveal. Yeah, so this week we are talking about end-user programming. So uh -huh. end-user programming is a vision of computing that allows people who are not professional software developers to program their own computers. So users uh, of programs can uh, customize or modify the programs that they use every day, or they can write their own to suit their own needs. So it's a kind of uh, concept that allows the end users uh, that, who we typically think of as consumers to also be creators in software development. Yeah, we keep going back to old ideas in computing and software, but this is 
one of the early ones. When computers really first came out, it was only mainframe computers that were available for the military or like other government projects. And when computers shrunk and chips shrunk, like a lot of hobbyists got really excited because this meant a democratization of computing resources where you can create your own worlds and build your own software for people. And since then, we've been chasing it and chasing it. And so I guess this week we're going to talk about where we are in like the past four decades. Well, we're not going to go through an entire history of it, but like where, where we are after yeah. chasing it for, for 40 years or so. Yeah, definitely. So I think that um, you know all of the the computing pioneers like Alan Kay and all the folks at Park and 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 all of that were big proponents of kind of having the users be empowered by personal computing as opposed to sort of mainframe computing and business computing. And so a big component of that was end user programming. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that users could program their computers in friendly languages at that time. Programming was done in assembly. Even, you know, in, in environments like, you know, this is the Xerox uh, Park and, and their operating system, they started introducing more friendly programming environments like uh, Logo and uh, things that eventually morphed into AppleScript and a lot of scripting languages, which were kind of new at that time. And so, yeah, this this has a huge storied history, and obviously, like we can go take a walk down memory lane. But I think that what I'm really excited about is that it's kind of making a, a resurgence. So, in a different I form, to, like it's yeah, it's not quite form. recognizable if you haven't traced the lineage, but like people are kind of trying to push in that direction. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I think it'd be interesting to kind of touch upon some of the the early attempts at end-user programming. And I think if I were to characterize it, there was a bit of a winter where it kind of fell by the wayside. And then and then talk a little bit about the interesting developments that are happening today that people might not immediately recognize as end-user programming. And then think about kind of the vision of the future as we as we tend to. Uh, yeah. So what, what should we start with? Because there's many entry points into this topic. Yeah. Where, where should we start? Yeah, so I think that what really got me interested in end-user programming was this really old program uh, called HyperCard. So this predates me and my use of personal computers, but it's it's a phrase that you uh, see quite frequently among like really really early personal computing users of like I think the Mac, where. Basically, HyperCard was a program that was a mix of a programming environment slash wiki. So basically, users would create these documents that could link to each other. So uh, you'd have these documents called cards, and they can link to each other. They can contain images. They can contain buttons and sound. And so if you structured these cards just right, you can basically create a little uh, navigable kind of user interface. And yeah, it's so, it's almost like a flip book. That's, that's why the HyperCard mm-hmm. used the metaphor of a card. So then they could then build upon that metaphor of a card to uh, like every program is a stack. So people could envision that cards are like pages. And if you want to flip through the stack, you could. And then the navigable buttons let you you know, f- pop 
cards on and off the stack and jump to the middle of a stack. So it was a programming metaphor that worked pretty well. And so I'm a little bit older than you. So I remember this in our grade school, like grade, like middle school. Yeah. Something like that, like computer classes. And so plenty of kids were able to pick it up with a little bit of scripting and this stack metaphor to, to kind of build their own flip books and animation books and sometimes applications. Wow, very cool. Okay, I didn't know that you had first-hand experience with with HyperCard. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're, not too much. I, I didn't play around with it too much because <laughs> I think at the time I had a PC. It wasn't really that into Macs, but, like, there were plenty of kids in our school that, that took the computer class for it. Cool, yeah. So, I mean, the, the way that I envision it, it's kind of like uh, like a, a choose-your-own-adventure kind of book, right? Like, if you you have this basically decision tree of cards and you can kind of click around and depending on your actions on the card leads you to one uh, branch or the other. And so you can, in that sense, it's interactive and, and sort of programmable. And so, yeah, I, in my research about it, I think people look really fondly upon it as a empowering tool for creating fun games, as well as little utilities that people use to run their businesses. And I think that there was in, in some citation that was basically saying that HyperCard and its concepts could be credited as the kind of bringing hypertext uh, to the masses and, and sort of popularizing uh, this idea and ultimately leading to the World Wide Web. So I don't know how true that is and how attributable it directly it is to HyperCard, but you can kind of see the relation between kind of hypertext and and hypercard. Well, I guess we'll have to ask Tim Burns Lee whether he used hypercard at all or not. But, but like, uh, yes. I think while he's credited for the internet and stuff, like, and hypertext actually, there's plenty of people that were probably in that area era that kind of were influenced. I don't know if directly by hypercard. In my all my readings, I, I don't know that I made the connection, but I have read that statement before. So, so yeah, I, I yeah. guess in some sense, like hypercard, the application itself was never actually networked because at the time it was written network computing wasn't really that big of a thing like people were only maybe starting to get online but not really like what was prevalent hypercard wasn't a network application so it wasn't like you could connect to other hypercard stacks but you could definitely like link uh, within your own and i believe maybe you could open up the other hyper stack cards i wouldn't be surprised if you could yeah yeah, yeah so i mean i think you know i've read a ton about this programming environment or editor and people really, really look fondly upon it. And I think the reason why is that it's a very prime example of end-user programming in that it doesn't look like programming that you know we do as professional software developers. But it is an environment and uh, an authoring tool that lets the users of uh, a program, like, like I was saying, people who we typically con consider consumers, it empowers them to build something for themselves, either for fun or for, you know, actual productivity in a way that we actually don't see all that commonly, right? We, we kind of see it today, like I alluded, but, you know, there was a time, a period of time, maybe with the dominance of Windows, but at least, you know, in my experience using Windows from Windows 95 all the way until like, whatever, Windows 10, where... There wasn't really that kind of tool that came in packaged with the operating system that kind of let you create something and run it on your own computer. 
there was this kind of two class system. You were you there were people who programmed computers, and then there were people who used the computers, and you kind of there was a big chasm between the two uh, that you had to cross by learning you know magic incantations. Yeah, I yeah definitely like people look on it fondly and. Sometimes I wonder if they look up back on it fondly because they were in middle school back then and like the things that shape us as adults tend to be what we were exposed to as middle schoolers, right? Because like definitely we notice a resurgence of a lot of retro gaming and retro council, that sort of thing. It's because like people that grew up in that age are now of age and so are yeah. in positions of power and nostalgia is a powerful drug to bring that sort of stuff back. But that aside, I think there is some amount of truth to the feeling of empowerment and creativity and maybe that the Mac was just at the right time in the right place to sort of enable that in the same way that I guess like Mac at the time enabled people to do a lot of like uh, print design digitally, whereas mm -hmm. they, they couldn't do that before. Right. And so anytime yeah. that you take what was, originally like a the equivalent of a luxury good or something that only professionals were able to do and you either like make it faster cheaper easier than you bring it like to people that can create it's i guess analogous yeah. to how instagram makes it easy for anybody to look like they know what they're doing with the camera and, and so in this way hypercard was the instant instagram of its day and so I guess like when you say like, I don't see a lot of that today, I mm. want to say it's probably in different forms, but I would largely agree with you in the sense that it's not front and center. It's not something that people immediately think of when they say, I want to use a computer. They're not using something that is like an end user programming thing besides the spreadsheet. So a spreadsheet is everywhere. That's my caveat. That's the yeah. biggest end user programming programming environment that we have today. But outside yes. of that, I would say that it's not really prevalent. And then I guess another thing that I want to yeah. get to later on is maybe we, after all these years, we don't really know what programming looks like and like what it could be. And so that's why we don't recognize programming when we see it or our view of programming is so narrow that we haven't really begun to explore the space of how to program computers until relatively recently. That's a very, very intriguing foreshadowing. I, I, I look forward to when we, we get right, to right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, to. let's put a pin yeah. in that and, and entice our audience to stay for a little bit longer so that our YouTube <laughs> stats turn out to be better. So stick around. Yes. Yeah. So anyways, what, what were you saying yeah. with, with the hypercard, like with these things that are, I was mentioning? Yeah. I mean, no, I think it's, uh, I'm really glad that you mentioned spreadsheets. So I want to pause a little bit from the examples of, of end user programming to kind of step back and, and talk about what we mean by end user programming and like what, what are some commonalities of the things that we're going to be talking about. So I, I found a, a really good essay from our friends at Ink and Switch, who we discussed when we were doing the uh, local first programming. And so they sort of identified a couple of qualities of what makes programming environment kind of suitable for end users. And, and we can kind of talk about that as we go through some of these examples. And so 
the, the three qualities that they mentioned is one of embodiment, meaning that the thing that you see on the screen is a representation of the object that it represents. So a, very meta sounding. So maybe a concrete <laughs> example would, would help. Yeah. I mean, I think if you've used a WYSIWYG editor, if you want to move something around in, in an editor like, I don't know, uh, Dreamweaver or uh, that's a very old example, but right, basically exactly. if you want to move an object around, you, you click that thing and you, you drag it around and that, that moves it, right? It's not that this object and image is represented by an uh, image tag in, in HTML and the way that you move it is by manipulating some other text or some other object. You directly interact with that object. And, and, and another example. Right, right. right. And so to, to give some context, since like most people interact with WYSIWYGs nowadays, maybe, maybe we need to give the counterexample of how it used to be. Like how it used to be was that you just had straight up text. And in order to manipulate something or like change it, like you had to surround it with tags or something like that. And so you see this most often in HTML when you're editing the actual HTML code itself or something like latex, which is usually still used today for laying out like scientific and academic papers. And so, so like WYSIWYG is where you, what you see is what you get. That's what the acronym stands for, yep. for, for those of you that never looked it up. But then, like, if you manipulate that thing that you see, then it, you have a direct tactical relationship with it. Like, you can directly manipulate the objects rather than manipulating code that represents an object. So, so you're one step mm -hmm. removed. And so this, yeah. this, is, this is what, what uh, they're talking about with this first step, where the, the concept of embodiment. Exactly. Yes. So that's embodiment. So you kind of have, the, have this direct connection with the objects that you are working with. The second one is that it's a living system. And so basically it means that when you update something, when you make some change, that is kind of updating on your screen in real time. So again, to draw a contrast, because a lot of software works that way today, if you program in a language, a compiled language like uh, C or C++, the editing process is that you change some text, some source code, and then you run the compiler to Intel to compile, and it generates the program, and then you run the program again, and that's how you observe the behavior, the new behavior with your with your changes included. And so that's a that could take a very long time. It can take you know, seconds, minutes, uh, sometimes in a, if you have a very bad build system, it can take even longer than that. And so this is in contrast to if you update a spreadsheet, you update a formula of a spreadsheet or you update a cell of the spreadsheet, it, it the changes kind of cascade instantly. And so this that, that's what they mean by a living system. And it's a spectrum, right? Like obviously compared to punch cards, the C compiler is is live. But relative to that, the you know a Python shell is is more live than that. But you know the end goal is that there is zero separation between your change and the uh, effects of that change kind of happening on the on the screen. Right? Yeah, yeah. Getting so more and more to yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. So beyond Python, like you have like spreadsheets, which things happen immediately, and so that's kind of the. 
I, I guess like holy grail that that we're, we're shooting for here with end user programming. Yeah, and and the last quality is that there's an in-place tool chain, and and this one is my take on this is that when you're programming in a traditional programming programming environment, we talk a lot about abstractions, and you need to have knowledge of a lot of abstractions in order to write a program. So when you're writing a program traditionally in, in software development, you tend to think about, you know, you have all your language, it has a standard library, you can pull in packages, NPM packages and, and all of that stuff. You're aware of the operating system on which you're running and the, the services and interfaces it provides. So you kind of have to keep in your mind a lot of these separate systems and the, the, the abstractions that they offer. And so this is, this is no good if you want an average person who doesn't live in this, is not immersed in this, to be able to program. And so Inconswitch says that a desirable quality of end-user programming environment is that your whole tool chain is in place. You don't have to kind of go somewhere. You don't have to keep in mind all of these other external things. You should be able to edit your program without having to install additional tools or programs or have knowledge of all these other things that surround the program that they're editing. So by definition, like Emacs would be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, because like people can have like shell out to, to <laughs> in Emacs and have browsers in Emacs and whatnot. But obviously like Emacs, uh, yes. I, I don't know if, does it fit the first two qualities? I mean, it's very it immediate. It is a live system. Yeah, it yes, is a live is system. Very... And uh, what's the first one again? <laughs> embodiment. So, embodiment. Uh, oh, so so it falls short there. Yeah, so like maybe maybe all there. we need to do is embody Emacs and we're good, right? <laughs> Pat ourselves on the back yeah, and move yeah. forward. Right. Clearly, uh, Emacs is the holy grail. I mean, some people uh, Some people might say so. Know. Yeah. But, but yeah, so I, I mean, I like these three qualities as a kind of structure for thinking about this. And I, I appreciate Ink and Switch for, you know, laying the groundwork in their essay for kind of thinking about this. So I didn't have to uh, think too hard. Uh, we can just jump in and record. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, as we go through these, I want to think a little bit. And so we mentioned HyperCard and, and uh, I don't have firsthand experience, but certainly it seems like it is a GUI kind of WYSIWYG editor. So it has that embodiment principle. Yeah, yeah. seems like it's live and... Uh, and yeah, it's sort of self-contained. So I think that it takes all three boxes. Yeah. Um, and similarly, yeah, I think spreadsheets maybe have some of those properties as well. Yeah, I think spreadsheets also have this sort of property. And I don't know, when you were going through this, I was just like programmers could really, like I as a programmer would want these sort of things. But like, I guess yeah. the surface area for any new programming tool or tool chain is just so large that it's really tough to kind of cover all these unless it was built in from the very beginning, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk about this a little. I think that software developers are, are kind of masochists in, in that we put up with a lot of crap uh, with with our tools. Well, so <laughs> it like, makes one wonder if it's a, like a status sort of thing. Because like, you know, yeah. compiled like language programmers are like, ah, psh, those interpreted programmer sort of things. And XKCD has a joke about this where like, you know, the, the, the most alpha programmer is... Is some programmer that is adjusting the 
metal on the platter of a disc as particles <laughs> from the space are like i don't know whatever to, right. to adjust like to that's how you program the ones and zeros on your computer and so i guess in yep. that sense it's like a status thing that makes us masochists yeah definitely i mean you know there's the 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 phrase i don't know if people use it anymore but like uh script kitties so yeah uh, yeah. yeah basically when all these scripting languages were coming out people the real programmers would would deride all these these new kids as script kiddies they weren't doing real programming they were just writing these like uh, Perl scripts or uh, bash scripts or whatever it is what they were referring to but um, ah, but little did they know that rails was coming and so a lot of the web is now <laughs> powered by scripting languages at, at least yes. on, the, on the application layer like that that's not to say databases and anything are, are written in those languages but yeah well i mean you know, we're welcome to Jamstack, where uh, everything is written. Uh, in exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and we, 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 we refer to right, Jamstack we, so derisively. Right, right. We do it ourselves, <laughs> right? So case in point. Yeah. Yes. No, but I think, yeah, there is definitely a lot of status associated with that sort of masochism, how much pain you're willing to put up. But, yeah, we've talked a lot about kind of this the future of programming environments, whether that's Elm as well as Eve and and many others where they do actually have a lot of these these qualities right like these are desirable qualities not just for you know the uneducated masses these are desirable qualities even for professionals who are writing this day in and day out in fact i would say even more so because you know if you're if you're doing this for a living and 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 you have these properties you can be uh, maybe a 10x uh, programmer, right? Just just from the fact that you you're not fighting your tools anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I do want. I mean, some of these ideas have made their way. I mean, the inventing on principle, the talk by Brett Victor about like liveness and programming, really kind of opened a lot of programmers' eyes to the point where I think I don't know, like Swift, I think borrows a lot of stuff from there as as well. And so I think like new programming languages pull people ever so slightly in that direction once these sort of ideas has have been popularized to the point where programmers that are making tools would put it into their new tools yeah you wouldn't think of you know web development today without kind of live re live reload right like it's it's sort of table stakes now yeah, if yeah you yeah. are doing web development you expect those components to change immediately and so yeah i, I think i agree they are filtering this, their way through. You know, so going back to the to the to some examples, one that's really, really near and dear to my heart is is Yahoo Pipes. Did you ever use that? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I couldn't find any, <laughs> like, great applications that I was, like, using it for, but I did play around with yeah. it to kind of get a couple things. Because I think one of those things that I often dreamt about was that I could set up like an agent or robot in the cloud to do something for me. But yeah, I really do remember yeah. Yahoo Pipes where it was one of the first kind of like a workflow programming paradigms where you have nodes that do work and then you connect them together. Why, why mm -hmm. was this near and dear to your heart? Were you in middle school at the time? And so yeah, that's why. No, uh, yeah, actually, literally, that's why. Um, oh, really? I was joking, but <laughs> no, I guess yeah. that was true. No, your, your, your thesis is, is proving correct. Yeah, so I, I was in middle school at this time. And I think that 
this was in the heyday of web 2.0 and so i should i should explain what yahoo pipes was it it was a sort of basically a, a gui where you build these data processing pipelines and uh, like you mentioned the nodes are doing work and uh, you can feed this pipeline basically all kinds of events that are happening ar- around the web and so this was at a time when rss feeds were a big thing and so you could feed in rss feeds from websites to to kind of perform actions when websites updated or there was a new post or something there there was uh, so you could you could watch like when a user uploaded a new a photo to Flickr or you know did something on delicious or all those old uh, uh web 2.0 sites huh. so like why why yeah. did you find it so enticing so it it again goes back to I guess that that feeling of empowerment that that is at the core, I think, of end user uh, end user programming. So, the whole ethos of Web 2.0 was that you know, the web was kind of composable and uh, user editable, and so you know every every service exposed RSS feeds, tags, and and or kind of the early idea of APIs, right? Where you could, as a user, post something to some URL. And so you could do interesting things with Yahoo Pipes, where if somebody you know, posted a uh, new picture to Flickr, you could like get a like email alert, or if you followed like some food blog, you could take all the restaurants that were mentioned in the food blog and like map them on Yahoo Maps. And basically, you could create these mashups, and I think they actually use that that term in their documentation or, or, or something. But like, basically, you could mash up like source A and source B, uh, or source uh, source A and source B, and then combine them and output them onto a uh, web page or a map or you know something else. And so it just seemed fun, you know, because at that time, prior to Web 2.0, you basically just had these static web pages and uh, this was the first time where it felt like the internet was living and i was a participant in this kind of living i see i see yeah so because outside of that that was before you started program i don't know if you were programming in middle school but probably not very well GeoCities level. uh, I I see. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't to the point where you could like take this sort of stuff and put it together, but like Yahoo Pipes uh, got it within reach and it had like a philosophy and values behind it. So you felt like you were a participant rather than just a a consumer. Huh. That's kind of interesting. Were, Were there other technologies that was going to be along this line? Because I had another line of thought that we might have to put a pin in. Uh, no, I mean we can we can go into it. I, I, the only thing I will mention is that Yahoo Pipes was killed due to the horrible mismanagement of Yahoo, and uh, there's a very interesting Hacker News thread uh, where all the alums of Yahoo Pipes uh, kind of reminisce about it. But it lives on if you use tools like Zapier and uh, Ift and all of those things. I think they're spiritual successors. Oh, they <laughs> they don't have that same like 
feeling of freedom, but maybe that's just because I'm not in middle school anymore. Right, right. The threshold in the bar for a 30-something odd programmer on the internet, jaded, at, no, optimistic at that, is is yeah. much higher. But yeah, I, I mean, along those lines, I think the things that I was thinking about was why these things got killed off if they were so popular, right? Like HyperCard... Mm -hmm was pretty popular. I mean, it was bundled with the Mac. And according to the things that I've read, it just wasn't, uh, it was like an economic backwater for Apple. So that's why they never really put a lot of investment in it. And yeah. I don't know about Yahoo. Was it the same for Yahoo Pipes? Do you know? Yeah, pretty much. So at some point, Yahoo started to lose market share and their search engine, and then they pivoted to this like portal model. And so all of their kind of pie in the sky, non-revenue generating things were basically killed. Yeah. So it makes me wonder if like the heyday for end user programming applications is when a medium is relatively new and mm -hmm like the first wave of people are the people that can program. And so it's when the second wave wants to do what the first wave is doing and you provide that tool, like people can rapidly explore the design space for that thing and play it out. Because I, yeah. in the same way, like when somebody finds a beachhead somewhere, then a whole bunch of people like glom onto it because they want to like finish exploring the space. It's, it's why yeah. like in 2012, like the only startups that YC saw were Groupon clones and and like a couple of years earlier I think like 2008 or 9 like the only things that they saw were like social media companies and stuff like that right and yeah. same thing with like Uber I, when was that like maybe 2013-ish mm -hmm. in their heyday like all people saw were like Uber for this Uber for that right because people want to play out the space right. and so once people play out the space in something then maybe they're like okay like there's always going to be a long tail of applications for any particular platform. And so that's why Microsoft lets third-party developers do their thing and open it up. And then once the third-party developers figure out like what's people actually really use, like PowerPoint, word processors, spreadsheets, they'll just make a native version of that and everybody uses that. And then that stakes out like the 80% of the use cases. And yeah. so do you think it's, it's a matter of like where people are on the adoption curve for a particular medium that end user programming makes a lot of sense. And when it doesn't, mm -hmm. like people feel like it's played out, then then you don't anymore. And so that's why HyperCard and Yahoo Pipes went away. Cause, but obviously like spreadsheets yeah. are still around and we consider it as part of this group. So maybe that's that's like the combo breaker for this thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. Basically, I think my take on this is how long of a tail is the you know space of of programs on that platform, and so there are a lot of very very niche use cases for spreadsheets where it would be impossible for a spreadsheet software developer to kind of subsume all of the things and anticipate all of the things that people would want to do with spreadsheets 
and then just introduce that as a built-in functionality. And so I think that that explains the longevity of spreadsheet. But you uh, could argue the same yeah. thing with like Yahoo Pipes because like the web has so many things with, you know, like lots of different APIs and services coming online all the time. So like why did Yahoo Pipes die and spreadsheets didn't? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I actually don't know. I don't know how many things people wanted to mash up on the web. I think that the things that people wanted to mash up on the web got done. Like, I think... Well, until you have a new service, then you would have, like, another N things with every additional Hmm. thing. So, I don't know. It's it's hard to say, right? Because, like, what we observe is what you're saying. But then, in theory, you you could have any number of mashups. But I guess... The fact that Zapier yeah. exists is maybe a proof point. So maybe Yahoo just fucked it up, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, it's interesting. Like Zapier basically pivoted to enterprise. So unlike Ift or IFTT or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, yeah. where they stayed firmly in the consumer space, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zapier is all about like, you know, you're an enterprise and you get like, you know, some update to your CRM and then you trigger some email or something. And so I wonder if there is a lot more of this long tail customizability within enterprise versus the consumer where, you know, they're, they're, you can kind of anticipate your needs, their needs. Yeah, and, and I, I want to say that, that maybe that instinct makes a lot of sense because also like Yahoo Pipes would have had to survive 10 years before Enterprise would have opened it opened itself to cloud software, right? And so maybe they yeah. were still a little too early. It just couldn't see that bridging the gap until 10 years later. They had to have survived for that long and somebody running the show would have had the foresight to keep the lights on for that long in order for that stuff to play out. So yeah, maybe they were just really early. Yeah, I definitely, I think they were too early for their time. There was mismanagement, many, many reasons. I think the other thing is that it's just sort of a cultural shift where right after web 2.0, I don't know if you would count, you know, Facebook and Twitter as Web 2.0. They were kind of emerged from Web 2.0, but uh, they kind yeah. of ushered in the uh, kind of other age of like social web or whatever yeah. it is. And, and so the culture also shifted on the consumer side where rather than giving users tools like where the Web 2.0, web 2.0 ethos was all about you know, users contributing to, you know, shared knowledge, collectively tagging things, collectively, you know, organizing things. We kind of shifted to this other model, maybe ad-driven model, maybe that's the economic engine behind it, where you're basically the algorithm knows best, all right? And you mm, are using yeah. something that is tuned essentially by a centrally tuned algorithm. And so the kind of incentive structure to provide these interfaces to the user is gone because like if I'm if I'm Facebook, I want to control that algorithm. I don't want to let users like do whatever, you know, random stuff. Like and in fact, Facebook for a while 
this wasn't end user programming, but like they were kind of open platform. Yeah, where yeah. people could like put apps up and and have these like little quizzes and 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 all of this stuff and all of that just like went away. Right, and throw sheep and until they found that some developers really abuse that system. But yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so it's that's not end user programming, but still, it kind of shows how the openness of these platforms you know gradually eroded um yeah do we definitely do the economics was there ever a name for this like second era of web 2.0 because i've never actually come across it because like the the children or the survivors of web 2.0 certainly are a different beast than they were before so uh uh, I don't right. think there's a name to it, right? You either, you either die a hero or yeah, right. live long enough to see yourself become a villain, right? <laughs> right, like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, I was just wondering if there was a name, because I haven't actually heard a name, but it was distinctly different than, than the original Yeah, Web th- there's some shift. I, I think it's a, it was a very, very gradual shift like, yeah, to yeah. the point where nobody could quite say, oh, we're in a different era now. But yeah, I definitely, I think that, actually, I, I, I was thinking about something which is kind of, tangentially related to both of these topics so it's not quite programming but it is a type of markup where if you remember the the really really original twitter it didn't have any features it was a horrible like minimalist like bare bones website yeah where it was basically an endless feed of things that people were smsing to their member to their number but it it allowed users that that kind of free form interface allowed users to come up with things like at tagging users by their handle, prefixing it with like the at sign Mm -hmm. as well as, as hashtags. Hashtags were not a feature that like a PM at Twitter planned. They were kind of organically invented. I I think there was like some web 2.0 conference or something where people were like, Oh, like let's like, you know, add, add these hashtags at the end of our posts so that like we can use the search function and like find each other, each other's posts or something. And so it's not programming per se, but it is, I I will say I'll stand behind the, the idea that it is a type of markup language that was collectively invented by this group for their own purposes. And yeah. then later Twitter was like, Oh, this is a good idea. Like let's actually just make this stuff part of our service. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. The there's a sense of it's a weird example of like collective end user programming. I guess it's kind of like they yeah. dictated the thing and then it, it actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I've often joked that Randall Monroe, he's like the world's most prolific programmer because all he has to do is draw a comic strip, and then there's like legions of programmers willing to make it happen <laughs> so so in this right. sense it's the other way around there's like legions of users that like invent the hashtag because it suited their purposes and then twitter as a single entity is like oh i guess we'll implement this yeah and and there there was actually an interesting essay that i read about end user programming by this guy called clay shirky who is like yeah some kind of thought leader like mm-hmm. on on the internet yeah he's been around for a while uh, yeah. And so he has this essay called Situated Software, which is basically about end user programming and specifically end user programming around groups. And so basically his his thesis is that uh, a group knows what they want out of a problem space, even more so than an individual. Like a group, 
let's say a team or a club or some social collective can, you know, collectively develop some cultural knowledge about like their needs, what their community needs and, and be able to encode that in software. Mm -hmm. And if you allow groups to be able to encode, uh, you know, their, uh, their, the way that they run in software that it's a lot more effective than having somebody kind of top down implement that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's an interesting idea. I think that, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll reiterate on this point. Like we kind of, there was a homogenization of, of what it means to be a consumer of computing. Like it, and it, it, it is the product of, the economic engine that powered software uh-huh. for the last decade, yeah. right? So we kind of increased that distance. There was already that distance between the consumer and the programmer, and then we increased it even more because it was profitable to do so. And so, yeah, as we kind of go back away from that, I think things are going to get interesting. And we we did touch upon this in one of these episodes that we talked about recently, where we were talking about the metaverse, like the, the, the kind of virtual environment and how, again, there it would be really boring to have a metaverse where you could only do the things that the developers of that metaverse yeah. allowed you to do, right. right? That's just a game. Like, this is just a big MMO. I think it will get really more interesting when you as a user can modify that world in the same way that you as a living person in the world can do new things subject to the laws of physics but like you know you you, you can do basically anything and so <laughs> with with consequences uh, of course we, we also with, understand with, that there are rules right. and regulations and so yeah 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 <laughs> yes yes <laughs> but yeah i mean i think so i definitely think that end user programming will play a role in the metaverse where people imbue objects with properties programmable properties that they the developers did not necessarily anticipate yeah but yeah but i think you're right though we'd probably have to get this right before like anybody else kind of sets some of these programming patterns into stone because i can't imagine meta or like facebook wanting people to do this sort of thing that doesn't seem in their Mm. dna right and so like racing them to kind of establish the the pattern for the metaverse is probably pretty important so yeah those of you listening out there that are working on this especially followers of uh 6529 i think yeah Uh, punk 6529 he talks about uh, open metaverse a a lot on twitter so yeah yeah i mean i think that you know looking at the reaction to meta trying to uh to capitalize on the the metaverse concept and trying to basically become the central point of of the metaverse, I think there was a lot of resistance to that uh, within the Web three community, and 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 people were looking for open metaverse. And I, th- it might be for a variety of reasons, it might be for ideological yeah, reasons yeah. or financial reasons. And but I think like yeah, like move fast and broke things broke also user trust. So so yeah. that, that they only have themselves to blame for that one. Yeah. 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 So, but, but, yeah. but I think that, like, yeah, like, I think, uh, I don't think Facebook is going to uh, all of a sudden, just because they changed their name, allow their metaverse to be all end user programmable. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I think that it's going to be really boring. I think that, 
any metaverse that succeeds is going to have to introduce introduce this at some point. It's going to look more like Facebook or more like MySpace than than Facebook is currently. Before. Yeah, no, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So then, going back to like end user programming, like we we talked about like some of the examples of like why it existed and how it was killed off and like like the situated programming. So like where well, one of the things I was wondering is like why is it so hard to get end user programming right is it like a is it because programming is hard is it because we don't have the right abstractions or, or like way to think about programming computers that's hard or is it like the well i asked about like if it's an economic reason right and so i think we covered that yeah. a little bit so i guess we can move to like why, why is this so hard because we've been at it for a couple decades now yeah, I think that we we touched a little bit upon this on the data log episode, but basically there are ways to constrain programming so that it is is not as hard or is not as intimidating. Yeah. But the problem is that eventually you run up against the wall and you're like, "Oh, I need to drop down into the lower level abstraction." Yeah. Like this thing is not you know, it, my problem is not suited for the abstractions that this environment is providing for yeah. me. At which point, you're basically back into just regular programming, yeah. right? Like, if you think about what the way that you build software you're using regular programming languages, what do you just build? It's weird. Like, you build software out of like things like loops and and if and else yeah. and, and lists and and dictionaries and that's it right like every every software that you've ever used no matter how complex is basically just cobbling together all these like like four magical ingredients in a variety of ways uh, i mean programmers even before that would argue that like everything's a go-to so i mean right, right yeah <laughs> go-to's and registers right right, right right so so it depends on where you want to cut the abstraction but right. like ultimately like I think that's the di distinction between end-user programming and, and what we consider just standard programming is that, like, end-user programming provides a view of the world which is simplified and might work as long as your user's problem domain is well situated, is, is sits squarely within the, the abstractions that you provide. Right, but we have things like that for very narrow domains such as like photoshop for like photo editing like it works really well there like almost no like photo photoshop users like i need to drop down and write some script well maybe like gimp users because don't can't you write like <laughs> python scripts with gimp yes. but yes but i mean uh, like so so it makes me wonder like why there isn't like a more generalized modeling tool because i've heard chris Granger talk about how programming is really an act of trying to model the problem domain that you're trying to solve and like building the correct, not only mental model for it, but like the abstraction around it. And so you would think that because this is what we do all the time, modeling, there would be, there would be like a set of elements and tools that are common to modeling as an activity in the same way that there are common tools 
and elements to say drawing or writing because like we've been drawing and writing for a long time and when i say writing people won't necessarily think pen and paper but like kind of we have letters and words and a language and we have like some ways to like organize those things into paragraphs and pages and then from there it could right. be like books magazine blah 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 and print and so there's there's all these things yeah and then for drawing like we think of you know at the very basic pen and paper but then like we've abstracted out to like digital drawing where there are like the pen tool the paint tool and ways to put layers and stuff like that. And so like you would think that there might be like common tools around modeling problems, but so far I haven't really yeah. seen really good ones besides the spreadsheet is like the closest I can think of. And maybe Wolfram mm -hmm. alpha kind of, but like that most people aren't well-versed there and that's closer to regular programming. So at best, yeah. like I can only think of like spreadsheets and I, I don't know why that yeah. is. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. Like, I think that there are formalisms in other fields is what you're trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, where yeah, You can kind of operate on them and you can compose them and they they behave in some way that we understand. Right. right. Like, if you do this thing, like, this thing will happen and you can combine it with this other thing and it, this thing will happen. And so... Yeah, we're we are lacking that as a as a field, and, and one one interesting line of thought that I've I've seen mentioned is that notation matters. Where imagine mm. doing mathematics without Arabic numerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like right? You, you try to operate on these like uh, Roman numerals. You're not going to do any kind of interesting math in your life. Like the, like no matter how smart the Romans were. Like, they're not going to invent calculus using Roman numerals. Yeah, and so I guess to, to build on that, it does remind me, like, a lot of the proofs that you see for, like, older proofs, like, they weren't originally written that way. They were actually written in paragraphs with words. Mm. And so when yeah. you see the original, you're like, oh, this is completely unintelligible because, like, it, like people think that, like, math like with the formulas is like really dense and opaque, but like it's a, it's a far better improvement than what it used to be when people would write like ambiguous paragraphs about what a proof is or to kind of share a mathematical concept or an idea. I mean, that's, that said, that's not to, uh, yeah, that's, that's not to say that current mathematical notation can't be improved upon because like in some fast moving or like edge fields in academia, you find people use completely different notations for the same idea and people can't really agree on anything. And the, yeah. the further out you go, the fuzzier math notation gets. And so right. it's actually not quite as concrete as you might the, think of it as being just by seeing the, the virtue of somebody using math notation. It, yep. And it does remind me that recently I found out about a projective geometric algebra. I think that's what it's called. Hmm. And it's a way to replace a lot of the vector calculus that is prevalent in a lot of science and engineering to the point where it simplifies things. Like, for example, like Maxwell's equations is usually represented as four equations, but using projective geometry, geometry you can actually represent it as one you cheat a little but 
Yeah, so 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 it's it's an example of like a notation really helping things out, or, or even like rotations in three D space. Like it's much easily, much more easily represented in projective geometry, and that's that's because like all the constraints of rotations is built into the notation itself, so that the person manipulating the rotations don't actually have to think about it. And so that's an example of mm. where like the notation and tools really help you out. Yeah. I, I, so uh, I am not smart enough to uh, be casually reading about projections. <laughs> Neither uh, am I. Uh, uh, honestly, like. whatever. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a interesting observation. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, notation definitely plays a big role. I've heard people who think about programming language theory kind of espouse that idea and i think that you know maybe we haven't found quite the right notation of programming or to your point the right notation for modeling problems basically yeah like we, we're just not there right because we do we have figured out like a couple good primitives that have stuck around right like if statements yeah. i don't know actually i've thought like me. Maybe like there's, we have many ways to represent if statements actually. Like when you think of like poly, yeah. polymorphism and like the strategy pattern and stuff like that, those are all like yeah. different ways of organizing an if statement, right? And, right. <clears throat> or to deal with variations in the problem domain. Like how do we organize this yeah. code to deal with variation? I think that's where some of the complexity comes from. And so right. we do have like some of those basics like for loops and whatnot, but we haven't managed to like every time we go up one, like let's let's do object oriented programming. It sounds like it makes sense, but then like we yeah. eventually find like ah oh, there there's weaknesses here that like really entangle things and really uh, ratchet up the complexity that maybe this is not quite right. And so currently we have all these like branches of things where we're trying things out and I, maybe. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think I'll echo that. I think we're at a local maximum, right? Like if we know if statements are effective and for loops are effective and yeah, to your point, like everybody has their own idea about like, okay, what's the next level on this ladder of abstraction. Yeah. Uh, you know, functional programming has some ideas. Object-oriented programming has their own ideas. Yeah, but, like, there's none that was like, oh, this is the smoking gun. This is the clear winner, right? Like, and so, yeah, I think we're kind of fumbling around trying to find the clear winner. I And, uh, you know, in our last episode, we were talking about Eve, and I think they were, they were hoping to find yeah. the jackpot of, like, what is the beautiful abstraction that will unify, like, all the things. And, and they, they, their stab at it was... You know, data log, and and that kind of that thing, and I don't know, like maybe maybe actually they failed due to economic reasons, not due to the failings of their um, technical. Yeah, rights, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But I agree. I think that we're it's not we, it's not clear where to go from here, but it seems like everybody's like, yeah, there's somewhere else to go because this can't be it. And so right? I, I wonder if then <laughs> the problem is because like. Abstraction is a tool of choice for programmers, but it really matters where you cut the abstraction in this interface. Like the thing that I often like to use as a metaphor is that abstraction is like the steering wheel of a car. Like without the abstraction, you have to time the firing of the pistons with the spark plug. And as a driver, like you don't, you don't want to do that. Or maybe the gas pedal, right? The gas pedal is what yeah, controls yeah. the spark 
spark plugs in in a car and so what you want is yeah. the gas pedal as an abstraction right like you don't want to right. time the spark plugs but like like early cars like the the user interfaces for those are not what you would expect like the steering wheel for a car used to be like this horizontal crank you've ever seen <laughs> those, seen those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so like uh, we eventually figured out that wasn't quite right and and uh, I I expect it to be the same. And so I wonder if programming will always be hard because like finding the right place to cut the interface for an abstraction is hard. And I don't know, maybe if we solve that problem, then it'll make it a lot easier to find the right abstraction more quickly in the same way that like the guy that did the, first man-powered flight over the English Channel, he solved the meta problem of how do we build a plane that after it crashes, we can like reconstruct it in a matter of hours rather than days or weeks so that we get more iterations. And so that's how he solved the man-powered flight problem was by solving the how do we reconstruct an airplane quickly problem. And so maybe mm. if we solve the how do we like better figure out where to cut an interface problem for abstraction yeah. that will find better abstractions more quickly? Yeah, that, that's that's a, a really interesting avenue where yeah, it, it, right now you know we have a handful of abstractions uh, that come out uh, every once in a while, but yeah, maybe we just need to to somehow have this Cambrian explosion of 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 abstractions and, and, and different types of programming language. But here's a question I have for you is that in this line of thinking where if you kind of, we iterate collectively on abstractions and we find a magical abstraction for programming. Do you think then that we don't need such a thing as end user programming because that abstraction is so beautiful in its in its simplicity and its power and expressiveness that now anybody can understand it? Or do you think that there's a place for end user programming still? Also, like if we find the the best abstraction, like will we want to leverage it ourselves or would, would, you, would we want to farm it out to professionals to do it in, in our stead? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, so right now we have, you know, regular programming, we have end user yeah, programming yeah, yeah. and end user programming is like nice and comfy right, right. And, and fun. Right. Yeah. And is that, is that an artifact of the fact that like the real programming is all difficult and, and tedious? It, like, is that an artifact of the fact that like real programming it hasn't yet quite found its abstraction? And then if it were to find it's the magic abstraction, then we don't need this dichotomy anymore because now regular programming is just, as oh, fun and, yeah. and, you know, May maybe I mean it's it's hard for me to say because of the fact that you mentioned before that sometimes you hire professionals because they need to drop down in the level of, of abstraction and so mm -hmm. if if problems are always difficult enough with like weird enough edge cases you're always going to want to have somebody that can drop a level down in abstraction to kind of help solve those problems that weren't anticipated but i guess yeah. that's the that's the thing that's supposed to be taken care of by the great abstraction if we get the great unifying abstractor and you never have to drop down in abstraction then 
Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe that's the equivalent of saying like all problems could be encapsulated, like all problems with edge cases, the, the all the edge cases can be encapsulated by this abstraction then, or set of abstractions then. Yeah, I guess so. Like that they, they yeah. should merge together into the same thing. Yeah, so maybe, but that, yeah, it's can't imagine that we're i you know we're supposed to be uh, uh you know yeah it's hard to imagine whatever, yeah it's hard to imagine that, yeah. like it's it's like uh, we just don't have the notation or the tools or anything that's anything like that so it can be hard to i guess the closest that i can think of is maybe just like basic arithmetic that like encompasses so much of like the the world that we don't really think about it anymore but before that right. Even concepts like yeah, it's zero like, it's like we're the, or like negative numbers were like so hard for people to grasp. It was part of like knowledge of secret societies. Right. It's yeah. It's, it, we're basically like we're like the Romans who are like mm. asking each other, is there like <laughs> is there a better way to do numbers? It, it, are, are we and the baddies? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, are we the yeah, exactly. Like, are, are we bad at math? Yeah. And it's like, no, no, we are right. optimal at math. Right, right, we're all given what we know. But, but we have um, these skulls on our helmets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, so going back, you know, t from these existential questions of wh wh whether we deserve, uh, you know, saw good software right. and whether we'll ever come upon right. it. You know, going back to that, I you know, uh, so we mentioned at the top of the episode, Right, I think that we are in this like golden age of at least I think that we're in this golden age of of end user programming, and there are reasons to be hopeful, right? Like, I think if you look at the the slate of productivity tools that have come out recently, like Notion and Airtable and Rome Research, which we covered in episode uh -huh. one of season one, right? Like. All of these are basically these live documents that expose, you know, some amount of, of, of customizability, of interaction. They might uh, allow some scripting, but even if they don't allow scripting, they allow end-user programming in much the sense that HyperCard allowed end-user programming yeah. because, yeah, it kind of through linking and, and that kind of, uh, you know, thing. Yeah, come to think uh, of it, like of Notion has the basic element and abstraction of blocks rather than cards, right? And so, like, I think right. the spirit of HyperCard lives on in a lot of these new products that you mentioned, like Airtable and Notion and Rome. But it's it's very it's hidden. Like, unless you know the lineage, it's hard to draw that that uh, line. But yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that's where you're going with hidden. Yeah, it's it's hidden in that it you don't feel like you're programming, right? But it's not hidden in that like. There are very, very lively communities of power users of yeah. these tools that are, you know, blogging about and writing about and selling courses about or, and, and, and all, all manner of activity about, like, this is my Notion right. workflow. This is my Rome research workflow. Right. This is how I'm, like, you know, organizing my novel in Rome, like, et cetera, et cetera. All the different uh, uses that one might have, yeah. all the long tail people are kind of collectively bashing at these tools and like figuring out like, okay, I can make this thing do this. Like I can have like a calendar that like reminds me of this every, you know, week or something. Yeah. Like I, I see some of this, like 
maybe it's it's due to the rise of this like prosumer where you know, these tools these days are actually introducing these end user programming and it's kind of like you know you know this phrase about AI where it's like uh you know AI it's not AI anymore when it's so pervasive. It's not AI anymore. Yeah. yeah, it's like like once 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 you know a computer can do it like it's no longer AI. It's right. like we're like yeah. oh well you know we have these like you know talking pucks in our home that like can do like random stuff. And right. like, this is not AI. This is just like normal like stuff. And so similarly, you know, it's not end user programming when people, once it exists. Yeah, once it exists cuz we don't call <laughs> accountants programmers uh because but they use spreadsheets all day, right? Yeah, and get get the computers to do stuff. Yeah, may, maybe, maybe. Although, uh, although I want to say maybe the difference is that like Excel doesn't expose what we traditionally think of as a GUI or like a graphical u- user interface. Maybe, maybe like if Excel lets you make something that looks like a web page or a web interface, then then as as part of the spreadsheet then we might consider that more and more right well so there are entire web pages that are powered by airtable as a type of database like but then are, do they i don't know if that comes uh, like well, how do they build the views are they pre-built views or do, can you snap together components for that i don't think you can quite snap together components but yeah there might be some pre-built views so in that sense, it's not fully yeah, yeah. programming. But but it's getting closer, uh, definitely. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, like Airtable yeah. is effectively like a souped-up spreadsheet slash database that, that you can start to build familiar workflows around. Uh, yeah, I guess like the, the workflows are effectively programs and processes, right? Like we just call it workflows, right. but they're really applications. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we have the data storage, right? Like, so, so you know, Airtable is basically you're you're basically creating a schema and you're making the the storage decisions. We have these like workflow platforms, like you know, Zapier. I think I mentioned iOS yeah. uh, shortcuts right. very frequently on this podcast. So those things are there. I think yeah, what what you mentioned is I think the that we're lacking kind of the interface building. Right, like if you if I have all this data stores and I can like run these like workflows on top of them, like that's great. Like the the missing link is like okay, how do I expose this data and like actually make like a view of it? Yeah, and, like that's not quite there. Maybe Webflow. Yeah, I was thinking like why don't like... Webflow and Airtable try to like mash together and make some babies, so <laughs> so that <laughs> yeah, right. you you get like the best of both worlds or something like that. Maybe they're yeah. just two really disparate problems, but I've always imagined something like Excel where you can merge some of those cells together to make containers and be able to pop them out to make buttons or something like that. That seems entirely feasible yeah. as as like a yeah, layout so, uh, engine or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, a, a, a layout engine. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like all the pieces are there. I don't yeah. know. One of you listeners out there, make this your startup. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so I think there are reasons to be optimistic and I don't know, we, we kind of already went into the kind of deep philosophical like, yeah. uh, effects of, of this thing, but yeah, like, I don't know any, any other thoughts on like, what are, if, 
if we get this right and people are able to write their own programs yet again with the promise that was stolen from them for decades and they get it again, what will the world look like? Like, will it be substantially different for the user, for the software community? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, if if it gets to a point where, like, it's one of the four R, three R's, four R's, whatever, how many R's there are in education, yeah. <laughs> like programming computers, <laughs> like maybe not the way that we conceive of programming computers today, but like you're able to leverage it as a tool as much as kids nowadays leverage, I was going to say pencil and paper, but maybe like typewriter, like the keyboard nowadays, keyboard and yeah. mouse. Like it's, it's just kind of like one of the basics of being educated. And so what would that world look like? And so I guess people would be able to make their own applications, if not agents in computers as they have their ideas and they wouldn't need, they, they wouldn't need to hire somebody to do it. It's kind of like nowadays, like uh, it's almost kind of like in the 1200s. If somebody wants to like write something down they need to go hire like a scribe or something i don't know if they actually did yeah. that but it's it's <laughs> right. it's it's the equivalent of that so then it would be a world in which programming doesn't look like what it does today programming would just be where you would be able to get the computer to do whatever it is that you would need it to do and two anybody who is considered educated would know how to do it just as nowadays Anybody who is considered educated can read words on a page and be able to write by themselves. Of course, there'll be like professional writers that you can hire, just like there are professional yeah. writers today. But for the most part, like people know how to make their own to-do list on pen and paper, like or like type it on a keyboard. Like nobody like contracts it out. Like I need to make a to-do list. Let's hire somebody. Like get on Fiverr for that. And so, right. what would that world look like? And I guess you would still have a professional class of programmers, but then you, the type of things that you would hire professional for tends to be more polished and definitely for economic reasons because the stakes are higher. But for things that are like everyday, like throwaway sort of stuff, like you would just do it yourself. You know, like you might watch a couple YouTube videos, right? Just like they're yeah. home like uh, YouTube videos on like how to, I don't know, like write, like change a tire. yeah, change a tire or like with respect to writing, like how to write your resume, the basic things that are kind of one off, you would just be able to use your computer to do it. And I imagine it'd just be a lot more fluid. And I think it would just fade into the background, honestly, like people wouldn't mm -hmm. think of it as a thing. It would be just like, but of course, like who wouldn't be able to do that sort of thing? Or it's just expected right. to the point where like using computer to get something to do that nobody thought of doing before is just considered something that you do naturally. Mm -hmm. So like if, for example, yeah. in our podcast here, like we wanted it to, I don't know, like we, we need some makeup. Or something, some sort of filter. Yeah. And we just thought of a right. filter that we wanted. We'd be able to just tell the computer, hey, this is how you do it. And 
and then we would be able to yeah. get it and then it would integrate with whatever software that we're using. And so I guess like the more I talk about this, the more it seems like, oh, this sounds really familiar. Like people were talking about this decades ago, <laughs> like with interoperability yeah. of software and stuff like that. But I don't know if like the economic right. incentives of like software companies and how the business of software would make that happen. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm fully on board with this vision, except I object to the word computer. Well, let's, let's shut down the press and step off this podcast <laughs> because what are we doing? I, 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 I'm opposed to computers. Right. <laughs> no, I, I think that when we use the word computer, I think it's so wed to you know, computing devices as we think of them today, uh, yeah, right now, uh, today, like uh, they have these applications, they have these GUIs, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really, really interested in, in computing being a component of, of a metaverse where mm, yeah. your, your computing environment is not a, you know, 2d world. It's it's a it's a three D world that you, that you live in that you own objects in whatever right? you have property in there and whatever yeah. and and what you want to really do is you want to give these things special properties maybe you have like some some secret yeah, area yeah. like and you want like to prevent people who don't own the right like NFT to like come there and so you need like a bouncer and like you need to like program this bouncer to like who does these things and like so you know, programming is going to look like, oh, I need this thing in this, like, world, and I'm going to somehow, like, give this thing the special properties that are based in logic or conditions or whatever it mm -hmm. is. And I think that that's the substrate that people are going to be programming. They're not going to be really programming, like, apps and, like, things like this. Like, I think for the most part, people don't seem too interested yeah. in programming apps. Yeah, yeah. But they might be interested in programming games. I, right? I, I think the, the that steps out even farther because, like, I was going to say, like, what you're talking about is computing not embodied in a device, but, like, the key word there is environment. Like, computing as an environment, right? So, like, it's a strange concept, but it's kind of like where the room is the computer or, like, the, the, the house that you're in is the computer. And so, like, anything... Mm -hmm that you see, touch, or can manipulate, you can program. And that means that you can get it to change its behavior based on inputs and perhaps some sort of hidden state. And, and so right now, like the atoms that we have in the so-called real world, they're not exactly programmable because we can't really envision like what you would do with some of it, maybe some of it. Like as I'm looking around the house, obviously like shutters can open and close, doors can open and yeah, close. Yeah, there's a whole yeah. IoT right. and all IoT that. I think that's kind of getting to that. Right, yeah. but but even beyond that, I guess like in the metaverse, like because everything is a digital object, like the possibility explode for things that you normally wouldn't think of as programmable, such as like wallpaper or like even like the size of the room and stuff like that. Right. And, and like, yeah, I, I want a house in which like when there are more than like five people in there, yeah. there are more than some amount of people, it expands. Yeah. Give me a ballroom kind of when I'm having a party or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's, there's stuff like that. And so when you are in there, I think the, 
the concept of embodiment then it becomes really important. And so this does um, <clears throat> bring me back to something that I forgot to mention when we were talking about embodiment. There is a game called Autonauts, like automatic mm. astronauts, I guess, Autonauts. The reason why Autonauts really worked as a game about programming is because the way that you program the robots in Autonauts is that you tell the robot in the game, watch me. And then you do the actions that uh, you want the robot to do. And as you're doing them, you can see it observing you and writing the program out. And mm. the program looks like a Scratch program. If you've ever seen like the Scratch programming language for kids. With the yeah, with the blocks stuff. and stuff. So basically it generates yeah. these blocks as it's watching you do things. And so mm -hmm. you can rearrange those things afterwards, but like the barrier to entry is pretty low because there's this concept of embodiment in which you just do the things that you have in real life and then the agent yeah. is able to kind of copy you. And so going back to your metaverse example, maybe like programming as a something that any educated person does is part as part of a programming environment, like programming as an environment is that you're able to say to some agent whether they're in, whether they have a body like in the metaverse or not. You just say like, do these things, watch me, and then you go and do yeah. those things. But you don't have to like be perfect in doing it because you can always re-edit it afterwards. After mm -hmm. that, and so maybe right. maybe that's one way where it it becomes a, a way for people to program, and then the the idea of abstraction would, would come after that, where you're able to like package these up in reusable forms in, in other ways. Yeah. I think if you go, go back to the ink and switch principles for end user programming, certainly the metaverse has the properties of embodiment and it has the property of, of liveness in terms of whether you can have a self-contained abstraction or not. Yeah, I think in the example that you provide where you are teaching by example, you don't so you don't have to drop into a different language yeah. or use some library or something. I think that's powerful. I think that you know, increasingly people are are interacting with with machine learning models through in a similar way through prompt engineering basically you, you feed like gpt3 like a bunch of examples and then like it does it it tries to do the, the thing that you're trying to teach it to do and so yeah if we get to the point where you, we have these models that we can just basically prompt engineer right so you say yeah, watch me do this thing a couple yeah times. because the, the the trouble i always had with embodiment is that the logic like I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to represent logic in the world itself. Like it almost always mm -hmm. seems like a separate panel that you have to show if yeah. you don't teach by example. So if you've ever seen those like markup editors, like outside of Typora, which is like a what mm -hmm. you see is what you get sort of markup editor, you always see like one side is the view, the preview page. right, yeah. and then the other side is the actual code that you're writing. And so yeah. when it the the problem is even more pronounced when you're adding extra logic to things that have like a surface view because like you don't necessarily want to expose all that. And so I think there's probably 
UI ways to to kind of figure this out. Maybe it explodes yeah. or maybe like every object is a card where you flip it and the backside is the program or something like that. But right. yeah, but yeah, yeah, I think that that is one of those UX challenges that we haven't really figured out when it comes to embodied programming. Yeah, so so I think so maybe that that's my thesis. If I were if I were to place bets, yeah. I think that's where things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a there's the other flip side actually, right? So we we mentioned uh, in previous podcasts about uh, a dynamic land and mm-hmm. like they had a computing environment, yeah. which is an actual physical computing environment, right. but similarly trying to give atoms basically some amount of programmability mm-hmm. and uh, manipulability. Yeah. And so that's that's also an interesting right. They, project. Dynamic Land was able to bring this concept of like programming as an environment to a real room rather than having to rely on VR and Metaverse to exist. So it's pretty interesting. Well, yeah. we we might have to talk more about it in a later episode. Yeah, yeah. So so all in all, I think my my take to summarize, I think you know you know in Harry Potter. Like oh yeah, movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. You wonder like like. All this, like every object is just like brimming with like functionality, right. right? Like everything is doing all kinds of stuff. And I always wondered, like, how is this stuff getting made? You know, like somebody had to make the like, you know, photos with that move and talk right, back to right. you. Like, it's not like a, a given that that will exist. Like, there must be a way that these people are, you know, creating these things and, and imbuing these these objects with this magic, and it might look kind of like per, like programming like i don't know yeah like, what kind of magic programming right because harry yeah. potter never really described like how spells were invented or like how how they yeah. do in production like are there like a special wizard school or like special class of wizards that devote explicitly to the study of creating new magic spells like we we don't know yeah right like are there the program and then like you create a new magic spell and then like you push it and it's like available to everybody's wand. Mm. Like, is it like an NPM package? Like, uh... <laughs> yeah. 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 Because it exists in the yeah. environment or like, do you have to pay yeah. for that w- with like, yeah. because it's a subscription, right? Like you have subscription right. spells. And so maybe like after the, su- the subscription is gone, your, your spell no longer works. Like how, how does that exactly yeah. work? I'm not, I'm not really <laughs> sure. Don't, don't bring our corrupt, like capitalistic right. models of software <laughs> development to, ma- to magic. Right. Right, right. But no, I, I think that's probably a good way to put it because like it's it's kind of hard to imagine when we think about it from a programming point of view because like as much as we try to imbue the things around us with programming, like things are always like half broken. Jonathan Blow is a game program mentioned before and he has this talk called The End of Civilization because like programming has just gotten too complex. One of the exercises he tried to do was just to write down every time a piece of software was broken. And so he had to stop after a week because there was just too many of them for, for him to write down. And then it, it like in the night before he had to give the talk, like at the hotel, he had this weird bug in which when the phone rang, the thermostat also beeped and he was able to reproduce it like consistently he has no idea why, right? It's some weird coupling. Yeah. And so like, I, I I always thought that like if our world was imbued with magic like in Harry Potter you'd have these weird couplings of states that that would be infuriating but but she doesn't really write about that right so it seems like right people are usually in control of their magic in that world at least for the most part I think but like yeah like yeah I I think 
Yeah, you're right. I think, if, if, but honestly, if we take our 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 current incentive stru- incentive structure and our current understanding of programming and modeling, and you suddenly imbue everything with that, like it's going to be a mess. So maybe we should like figure our shit out before <laughs> making everything magic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see. But did the the inventors of the combustible engine say, well, let's figure out climate change before we unleash this? And so here we are today, <laughs> yeah. right? So I, I don't know. Right, I, yeah. I, I don't know what to say because then there would be no Uber Eats and I would have starved tonight or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I think... You know, if we get to the point where, you know, we're all living in the metaverse and everything is programmable and magic, (laughs) but there are bugs, uh, uh, we will have to live with it. Right. Well, we'll have to live with it in some way. So with that, how's your optimism? I'm super, super stoked to, uh, you know, shed my, my physical existence and live in a, in a metaverse where I can tell my house to become a bigger or whatever. Right. Already to strip your corporeal corporeal suit for for the metaverse. Yeah. I think, I think I'm generally pretty excited when there are new ways to think about programming computers because I I don't know if people have already picked up on it or now I'm a little bit of a programming language nerd but I I think the the world in which people can kind of effectively perform magic is the world that we're describing I'm pretty excited for that so yeah with that I am not even in this world I am in the world of Harry Potter now I guess yes that's a new one for this season right Maybe we're gonna we're gonna launch to different places right. than just exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, um, yeah. With with that, I think we we are thoroughly you know optimistic and out of time. So right, optimistic and out of time. We're out of time. <laughs> uh, we're out of time. So anyway, uh, I'm Street. and this is Will, and uh, this has been the Technium. Come back next time for more. You know, ramblings about the metaverse and self-reference and a little bit of technology. Right. Exactly. Shalaka subscribe or what's it? Subscribe, like, and punch that. Yeah, punch that ring bell, whatever it is. Take care, and we will see you next week. All right. Bye-bye.